welcome to this episode of You Are Good. It's an additional episode on top of the Gremlins episode uh, we had planned for this week. We were like, you know what? It's the holiday. Uh, maybe you need an additional hour of joy in your ears. And so we have here a conversation with the fantastic Laura Lippman about the movie While You Are Sleeping. This is an edited down version of our much longer conversation that we have over on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. If you like this episode, if you like getting an additional chat every month, you can sign up at Apple podcast subscriptions or you can sign up on Patreon and you'll get something like this every month over there. Still, there's a much longer version of this conversation. So While You Were Sleeping is a 1995 American romantic comedy film directed by John Turtletub and written by David G. Sullivan and Frederick Lebeau. It stars Sandra Bullock as Lucy, a Chicago Transit Authority token collector, and Bill Pullman as Jack, the brother of a man whose life she saves, along with Peter Gallagher as Peter, the man who is saved, Peter Boyle, Glennis Johns, and Jack Warden. Laura Littman, of course, is uh, an author of, I think, somewhere around 4,000 books. Laura has been listening to and supporting the show for years. She's been on the show several times. We adore her. We adore Laura so much. I think her last book was Dream Girl. She has dozens of books out in the world. She is fantastic. We're so happy to have her anytime we're able to have her. This is one of those ones where, again, like throughout the holiday season, typically we go to people and we say, what's your favorite movie or what are some of your favorite movies? Let's talk about those movies. I love this. I'm so glad we get to share this with you. Come and find us on Instagram. Come and find us on Twitter at you are good pod. Reach out on Twitter, reach out on Instagram, reach out on uh, via Patreon. There's a little messaging service there. There's email on our website. Uh, let me know what has been your favorite movie that we've covered of the year. It doesn't even, it doesn't have to be the movie. Just like what has been your favorite, you are good conversation this year. I would love to know. I think that's about it for me. Again, if you like this additional conversation, you can get one monthly supporting on Patreon or over on Apple podcast subscriptions. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoy this bonus chat about while you were sleeping. Hello, Sarah Marshall. An everlasting love. Do you remember a period in the 90s when every third movie, you sat down, the lights go down, and then it's, this will be, right? Do you remember on our show, Carolyn recorded this song for another movie? Oh, for The Parent Trap? For The Parent Trap, yeah, totally. Where they like sing that part that's like super fast in the middle of it. Yes, yes. Oh my God, why don't I listen to that every day? I think that was the only one that we couldn't put online because of how complicated the rights were. Yeah, right. You don't want to be sued by Disney. <laughs> we don't. Wake up we and don't. Michael Eisner is grabbing your foot from under your bed. <laughs> anyway, I texted you this question while I was watching this movie. We watched mm-hmm. while you were sleeping. And I'm curious about like, I love this genre of comedy and I love the energy of this style of comedy. Yes. And I don't know what it's called and what its peers are. I think it's screwball, arguably. Screwball of the 90s. But, segue, 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 I feel like the best possible person to ask this question to... Who could it be? Is our guest... 
Laura Lipman. Yay. Thank you for having me. And you know, I took this so seriously. I did like real homework. We knew you I read would. a history of the rom-com called From Hollywood with Love. Amazing. <laughs> so romantic comedy must be romance dependent. And he uses the example of miscongeniality. Which I just watched the other night. How could you not? I mean, it, how can I not? It's in heavy rotation in my household all the time. And he said, that's not a romantic comedy because you could lose the romance and you'd still have the story. It's true. And yet, could you lose the friendship with Miss Rhode Island? You could not lose the friendship with Miss Rhode Island. That's so central to it. And apparently that was put <laughs> forward by, I think, Daniel Petre, the mm. director who did Miss Congeniality. Hmm. Looking at rom-coms, though, it actually gets kind of depressing because they made a comeback, but they made a comeback almost exclusively on streaming services. They're probably kind of dying down again, I feel. Yeah. There's certainly nothing in a theater anymore. Rom-coms and horror movies are similar in that you can make one that people will actually watch for like under a million dollars, which is true of almost nothing else, I think, genre-wise. I hadn't been going to the movies for a long time, and I loved them so much when I was in my 20s. I had a kid, so there's like that 10-year period where you just don't get to go see anything because you're just going to see the Pixar and the animated stuff. And because when you get a night off from childcare, you're like shooting up the town and... <laughs> Like, having car chases. You don't want to sit in the dark, you know, quietly for two hours. And then we had the pandemic. And as we came out, well, we really haven't come out of the pandemic, but I feel comfortable going mask into a a theater, especially in Baltimore. As we slouch away from Bethlehem. (laughs) That's right. Baltimore, where... You are never in a crowd in a movie theater. I don't know how any movie theater in Baltimore keeps going, but I have been going to the movies now every week. It's been wonderful, but when I think about what I see, not a lot of romantic comedies. They're like, I saw The Menu. I saw Tar. I saw The Banshees of Inishvaran. I saw Glass Onion, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. But I can't even think of a single romantic comedy that's been in a theater when I sit down to try to, no, absolutely none. I submit that it's not a good time to be a normal movie. You know, it's a good time to be a weird movie. <laughs> Am I right? I think you're totally right. And I'm so refreshed. Anyone who complains about this year in movies, I want to shake because I grew up in a time when normal movies were entirely it. It's a heyday. Mm-hmm. But that said, because we're awash in wonderfully strange movies, I found watching while you were sleeping very strange and I loved it (laughs) extra more than normal. (laughs) Everything is Twin Peaks. So I'll take, you know, designing women. Oh, that's a bad example because designing women's great. But you know what I mean? Something traditional. I love designing women. And I feel like one of the great things about it is that it fully embraces being a sitcom it's like a very mm-hmm. basic show with the fundamentals done right, where it's like the jokes are funny, the people saying them are funny and are saying right. them in a funny way. That's it. it. The sitcom's demands are very low. Totally, totally. Yeah. I went agreed. back and started watching Cheers from the beginning, and it's fantastic. I, you, know, you talk about romantic comedy. Oh, yeah. And don't you love how for the first year they never leave Cheers or they leave Cheers for a single scene because it's yeah. like a play? 
There's one in, trapped in a episode of Cheers where I forget the circumstance, but like they're not supposed to be at this like rich guy's mansion and they are, they're like painting. Some of them are painting it and some of them are hiding under a bed. And it's so, I've said this a bunch of times in the show, I feel like, but like because they're not using the same gear that they shoot the show with on the set, it's like slightly different and it feels like it's made of a different fabric and it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> They're not supposed to be in some rich guy's mansion, and they are. <laughs> That's the description on the like TV the guy. <laughs> You're like, honey, honey, what are you doing at seven thirty? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Laura, tell us first, and then Sarah will walk us through the plot. I know from my research that it was originally written for the woman to be in the coma and the man to be the suitor. And then they were like, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Does not sound like the creepiest movie ever. And apparently they pitched it to Meg Ryan's production company and got the response of, you want her to take a role in which she will be unconscious for most of the movie? (laughs) And they said, and I quote, are you fucking crazy? (laughs) I'm going to pitch the men who could pull off Sandra Bullock's role in this movie in that. Roberto Benigni, <laughs> Richard Pryor, <laughs> and yeah. maybe Billy Crystal. <laughs> I was going to throw out, I mean, he wouldn't have been old enough in 1995. Paul Rudd could do it. Oh, for sure. Matthew Modine. Totally. Matthew Modine, that's a great one. That's so interesting to know. I'm glad that they pivoted. So creepy. Very glad that they pivoted. So creepy. But then... What if it's Matthew Modine? (laughs) (laughs) Matthew, are you listening? (laughs) Sarah, walk us through the plot. Yes. Okay. Well, I will just say, first of all, that While You Were Sleeping is a canonical Christmas movie for me and my mom. We watch it every year. And I think that it really influenced my obsession with the maligned tabloid women of the 1990s. Because Lucy does the kind of thing that if you read about it in a tabloid, you'd be like, oh my God, this is the scariest thing I've ever heard of. And yet when you watch it all unfold and sort of gradually escalate, it's very relatable. You're like, well, I don't know. When is she supposed to mention that? (laughs) So while you were sleeping is a tale about Sandra Bullock's character, Lucy, who came to Chicago with her dad for his cancer treatment, and then he died and she had no other family and was kind of a loner. And so she works as a transit worker taking tokens in a toll booth, and every day she sees Peter Gallagher, and he kind of smiles at Mm. her or something sometimes. And she's like, (laughs) I sure love Peter Gallagher. Someday it's going to be me and Peter Gallagher, but she hasn't figured out how to say hi yet. Peter Gallagher's had two phases of his career and it's so weird how close together they are. And one is like almost feminine, beautiful Peter Mm -hmm. Gallagher. And then a year later, zaddy of the year, zaddy of the two decade Peter Gallagher. Yes. OC Peter Gallagher. Totally. OC Peter Gallagher, Schmidt's dad, Peter Gallagher. Like he's just like a... I think it was the real estate king role yeah. from American Beauty that kicked off the second phase, but he was so beautiful, extremely feminine and masculine at once, beautiful, and then just went hard 
masculine slash great aunt lesbian beautiful. I mean, he's the perfect actor for a part where for 75% of the movie, he's just asleep in a bed and all you do is look at his face. Yes. He's like, that's a good face for that. It is. And it's pretty expressive when he's unconscious and really, really nice lips. Supple. (laughs) We are not serial killers, okay? No, we're not serial killers, Matthew Modine or Peter Gallagher. (laughs) We don't have a collection of aging character actors in the basement. And so every day she sees Peter Gallagher and then one day... Bum, bum, bum. He gets mugged on the elevated train platform and falls onto the tracks. And what does she do but leap onto the tracks and rescue him and then rides with him in the ambulance. And then his whole family comes and they're very shouty and lovely and we love them. They're kooky. There's Aunt Elsie played by Glynis Johns. There's Jack Warden. (laughs) You know how every family has a Jack Warden? That's theirs. Just around. There's Peter Boyle. There's the mom. There's Monica Kena from one of the Freddy movies. (laughs) Freddy versus Jason. Everybody. (laughs) Last but not least, Bill Pullman as older brother Winston Shrug. How do we describe Bill Pullman as a romantic lead at this time? Seldom. I mean, he seldom is the romantic lead. It's sort of unusual for him to take this part. I think mm-hmm. he's better known in romantic comedy as the guy you don't really want to marry, the sleepless in Seattle guy, mm-hmm. you know, poor Walter. Or the guy you will stay married to, but after having a big flirtation with Tom Hanks while you yes. played baseball yeah. across America. Rumpled, but not. He's like rumpled in his soul. Yes. How does anyone look at Peter Gallagher and Bill Pullman as brothers in a movie and not wonder if there's a really big subplot that no one's talking about? (laughs) I have never seen two people look less related. You're like, so who's the random hot guy who your mom was having sex with in 1962? Has anyone (laughs) noticed that Peter Gallagher looks like a foundling? Like someone just left him on your doorstep one day? Take care of my beautiful baby boy. Maybe I'll be back one day. Yeah, the elves. I know I'm jumping way ahead. He doesn't seem to fit into this family at all. He's not nice like the rest of them, but I'll sit back. I'll just, later I'll talk about the Peter problem. So they're at the hospital. His whole family shows up. The nurse who has heard Lucy say, I was going to marry him, is like, she's his fiance. Fiance. She says fiance, right? (laughs) She does. She's awfully presumptuous. She's very noisy. And everyone's like, oh my God, it's Peter Gallagher's fiance. And then Lucy just kind of like allows herself to be believed into her role as his fiance. It's very interesting. (laughs) And they invite her over for dinner and she comes and she's like, this family is so nice. I love them so much. I can't give them up now. There is like an ingenious mechanism that they use for that, Mm -hmm. which is 
<laughs> a member of the family is going to drop dead of a heart attack at any moment. Very helpful. There's a bomb on the bus and she <laughs> needs to do everything she can to ensure the bomb doesn't go off on the bus. And she's a wildcat. Yeah. So she just has to keep driving and keep being Peter's fiance. It's emotional speed. It's speed at Christmas. Absolutely. <laughs> it's family daredevilry. It's speed at Christmas. Die hard. <laughs> you know, public transportation is a key element. It is. It, this made me long for tokens. Sandra Bullock has been thrust into the driver's seat just against her will, but, you know, she's plucky and she's going to keep going. I do like to think that when they were casting this, somebody was like, what about Sandra Bullock? That bitch loves trains, <laughs> loves public transit. Sandra Bullock has been thrust into this thing against her will, but is plucky and will do it is every Sandra Bullock role. It is. You're right. She's Miss In Over Her Head Girl Next Door. The Heat. Bird Box. Bird Box. Totally. Good for her. She's killing it. Good for her. It's a great role. You find what you're good at and you do it. And she's 12 years old in this movie. Oh, yeah. She's so cute. She's lonely. She has a cat in a big sweater and she has a neighbor played by Michael Rispoli named Joe Jr. (laughs) Who's like, hey, I was just stinking. Hey, loose. It's like he saw Working Girl once 12 years ago and is trying to emulate Alec Baldwin's role in that. Yes. And he's giving it everything he has, to be fair. So she's adopted by this wonderful family. Meanwhile, as well, Peter Gallagher, right before he was sent into a coma, proposed to his girlfriend, Ashley Bartlett Bacon, who is, as we are told, pretty uppity for someone named after a breakfast meat. A perfect Peter Boyle line, by the way. Every line is delivered at Peter Boyle volume and intensity. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Boyle, by the way, the closest on-screen representation to my father's personality. Oh, wow. In this movie or generally? (laughs) Just like 1990 on, Peter Boyle is just, looks like a goon. Like he's just, yeah, totally. It's my dad. But like Peter Boyle has like less menace than my father, but same loudness. The dad of all dads. So Lucy is just kind of adopted into this family. Peter Gallagher's brother, Bill Pullman, comes home and he's like, God, I feel like I should have a Bill Pullman impression in me because I can hear him so vividly in my head. But it's like, well, Lucy, you know, you just say everything was sort of like a twinkle in your eye and a smile at the in the side of your mouth. You're like, I think it's good. And he suspects her, but he's also like super attracted to her. And she keeps outfoxing him in terms of like, no, I really am your brother's fiance. And they're like flirting and slipping on ice and holding hands and having a grand old time together. There's a misunderstanding about Lucy being pregnant, which is just a cul-de-sac of a plot line. (laughs) Yeah, it lasts for four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) We learn that Bill Pullman, his father does like an estate sale company, like reselling estate sale furniture. And he wants to make his own furniture and branch out, but he's afraid to leave the family business. And Lucy wants to travel the world and get stamps in her passport. 
but she doesn't have any, which honestly, I think the main reason for that is that she's a transit worker and how much money is she supposed to be earning? But it's because she's not dreaming big enough. He's like, you just make plans and do nothing about it, idiot. And it's like, she makes like $4 an hour in 1995. Give her a Come fucking on. break. And she bought herself a whole Christmas tree. Come on. You, you carve furniture. Yeah. Your dad gave you a business, asshole. And then Peter Gallagher wakes up and he's like, I recognize everybody but you, Sandra Bullock. And they're like, he's got amnesia. And so then the doctor's like, yeah, he's got amnesia. So, yeah, this is the thing. You remember everyone but Lucy. And Peter Gallagher is like, you know what? I've been a real shithead in my life as evidenced by the minimalism of my apartment. I love Lucy. I'm going to give this a go. She seems great. Let's get married. Let's do it. And so you can imagine this is kind of hell for Lucy. It's a real fuck around and find out for Lucy. <laughs> Jack Warden catches on relatively quickly. And he's like, I know what you're doing, but I guess I'm going to play along with it. And you seem great. And then he like actively keeps it going. And he's like, Peter Gallagher, Lucy's the best thing that ever happened to you. Just figure it out. So we get as far as Lucy and Peter Gallagher being on the altar, getting married in the hospital. And Lucy's like, I can't do this. I actually was not your son's fiance. I just saved him from the train tracks. Once the misunderstanding happened, I just fell in love with you. And Peter Boyle's like, with me? And she's like, no, with all of you, with all of the family. I love you all so much that this really escalated. I'm so sorry. I have to go. And we have a whole subplot with Ashley Bartlett Bacon, who we love and who gets shamed for having plastic surgery because it's the 90s. But in a really funny way. I thought that it was like a wildly funny and clever scene for it being as reductive as it was. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, including your nose. And she's like, my nose. And then she's like, well, you'd better take these as well. <laughs> as a kid, I loved any scene in a 90s movie where a woman grabbed her own boobs because I was like, as soon as I get boobs, I'm just going to grab them all the time. And I was right. <laughs> And so we end with Lucy admitting the truth and the family basically all being like, Meh, that's fine. We don't mind. And so they all go together with Bill Pullman and he proposes and drops a ring in the token slot and we all cheer. And then they ride away on a just married elevated train. Merry Christmas. And I watch this movie every year. I've seen it like 50 times. Well, has it ever occurred to you that this film is actually the prequel to Everybody Loves Raymond? And that's what the family was like before. And then as soon as you move in across the street, it becomes a whole different thing. It becomes unreal. I have to say, I mean, I took my notes. I was like, when you see the whole family gathered around for the proposal, I'm just like, that's a big red flag. Yeah, absolutely. This is not going to go how you think it's going to go, Lucy. It's all very <laughs> charming right now, but you have mm -hmm. just kind of joined a cult. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's about a woman who like desperately wants in-laws and it's like, get ready. <laughs> Wait until you have kids. It's going to be a very different vibe. <laughs> this movie's about so many different things and one is just like the hell that is being a people pleaser. Like that's like a big one. And then also just like the lengths you will go and the trouble you will get into in order for your sole goal to be not lonely today can uh-huh. get you into a world of hurt for the rest of your life. Or not lonely in an imagined future because I'm convinced some people have kids entirely because they're afraid they'll regret it and they're afraid they'll die alone. And it's like, there's so many ways to die alone. And ultimately, as you die, you will be alone. So just <laughs> fuck it. Do whatever you want. <laughs> I hope this was inspirational. <laughs> People are so ready to hear that. Good. Don't have kids unless you really want kids because your life will be hell for years, possibly forever. Think about that. Best case scenario for years. Think about it. You'll go a decade without going to a grown up movie by yourself. I happen to know that that experience. If you still have Spotify, your Spotify wrapped will just be full of songs that are not yours. I saw that. <laughs> I have to say, though, I actually find having a preteen to be the greatest thing ever. I've never found my kid more okay. enjoyable than my kid at age 12. It seems like you wanted your kid, though, oh, right? Oh, yeah. I definitely wanted to have a kid. Yeah. That really helps. Yeah. Believe me, it was not something that was going to happen without a lot of effort on all the parties involved. Because, <laughs> you know, we were 50 when we had our kid, which is crazy. That's how long everyone should wait before they have a kid. But did you have to get like young people's blood and pump it into your veins or anything? Because that's what I do. Sort of. <laughs> if you think about it that way. The thing that impressed me most about while we were sleeping, which I watched for y'all, I had never seen it. It somehow passed me by. Thank you. um, And ended up watching it twice. I have a huge beef with rom-coms that have frictionless breakups, but not this one. Mm. This is one time Hmm. where you're not seeing just some easy breezy, oh, we weren't right for each other. Let's just call it a day, which is, you know, something that happens in Sleepless in Seattle. It happens in You've Got Mail. Mm -hmm. There are probably others that I'm not thinking of. Those are the two that come straight to mind. And it's like, you know, actually, you have this guy. He doesn't even know this person. He's just being told she's the only good thing you've ever done. And he's like, okay, maybe I could be a better person. Maybe I could take this opportunity to do something right since I'm actually a terrible person and my own godfather just called me a putz. But everything in this movie is kind of frictionless. Like when Jack finally gets his nerve up to go to his dad and say, dad, I want to open my own business. I don't want to be in business with you anymore. His father's like, that's great. I wish you told me that sooner. I would have sold the business and taken your mom on a cruise. It's like, fine. Nothing ever gets like super heated in this movie. Yeah, it's a great point. It was really nice seeing that conversation between Bill Pullman and Peter Boyle in this case, because like, not because it's like real. I mean, nothing about this movie. I mean, this, you could see some of this happening somehow, but like, it also is like so fantastic Mm -hmm. that it was almost just like banal, erotic ASMR (laughs) in just seeing people get along. Totally. That's why I love it so much as a Christmas movie. Like, I watched The Family Stone the other night, which I had seen years ago on TV. And I know a lot of people, like, it's like a big Christmas movie for them. And I was like, no, 
still, it's like got good stuff, but it's like a realistic level of conflict. Like if I'm watching a family movie at Christmas, I would like all out warfare or those fuckers better get along. <laughs> it's very sweet. It's an extremely sweet movie. I mean, in the end, when the Michael Raspoli character sobs in Lucy's arms over I a breakup know. and asks if she has cookies, and then there's the whole thing, we can try on my shoes, which is just like, I don't even know what they were doing with that throwaway <laughs> detail about that character. He just likes to try on Lucy's shoes. He's a simple man. <laughs> and Family Stone, it never quite gels for me. Mm-hmm. We are breaking hearts right now. <laughs> like unbaked strata. Sorry. I mean, it's like... On the floor. But I do like movies that take place in the week between the holidays. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's the movie where Diane Keaton is dying from cancer. Mm. Yeah. That's not a holiday movie. I'm sorry. I mean, I do like that it's like, you know what Christmas is about, especially if you have aging parents? Death. Because every year you look at them and they're a little bit smaller. It's true. And like, I do like that that was one of its themes. But like, yeah, I don't really enjoy it as a movie that much. It's a pretty big bummer. <laughs> a holiday movie should be fun. Mm -hmm. It's like something you see that makes you happy. And it's always a fantasy. Mm -hmm. The trees are better. The decorations are better. I mean, I laughed so hard while watching while you were sleeping because it was so clearly not filmed during a Chicago winter. <laughs> like, like, okay, mildest Chicago winter ever. Right. Also, families are a fantasy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my God, a new t-shirt. <laughs> I was one of two kids. Sarah, you're an only, right? Mm -hmm. And Alex, you have... I'm an only in my household, but my dad had, I had half siblings. Yeah. I've always bought into the romance of the big family while knowing that it's mm -hmm. romanticized. Mm -hmm. The books I read as a kid were always about, you know, you start with little women and these four sisters. And mm -hmm. I've always known that big families are not actually like that. Clearly, this is what While You Were Sleeping is about, which is if you're a single person with no one in the world, you're going to fall in love with this big, warm, mm -hmm. loving family. I'm okay with that as a fantasy because I don't think that big families are inherently better than small ones. Right. And not to make this as dark as possible, but like, it's not arbitrary that this is like a big Catholic family. I presume mm -hmm. Irish Catholic, but whatever. Callahan, yes. We do all long to belong to something. And being Catholic is like really belonging something. But then as we learned in another Christmas movie, Spotlight, <laughs> it's like sometimes belonging to something means preserving the wholeness of the thing over the welfare of individuals within it. And like this happens with families as much as it does with structures like a religion, I think. Totally. You just described the Godfather. There you go. Also, there is no legitimate business. That's the other main theme of The Godfather. It's not dark. It's dark in the background of it. But I think that that's exactly a thing a lot of people need to hear this time of year. Totally. Right. And like some of you are doing the dance of trying to like make work the whole thing of which you are an abused component. Yeah. And you can just you can just leave. <laughs> Low stakes holidays are the best. So mm -hmm. if your whole happiness and joy isn't wrapped up in Christmas, mm -hmm. you can kind of have a nice one. Right. 
Which like I think is like advice that applies to all things. This is the like most difficult time to remember it and to internalize mm-hmm. it because the current of the river is moving really fast and you feel like you have to do it. You know, I think that this applies to like dating. Like I think that this applies to like mm-hmm. business. Like I think it's like, yeah. you know, we get like too wrapped up in all these other things rather than just go like, what are the essentials here? And I agree entirely like, Ever since I stopped feeling like there were like benchmarks that needed to be hit for a successful Christmas, I was like, oh, this is actually fucking fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Like the symbology is bizarre. It's beautiful. It's fun. And if you erase like the pressures of it and also what it indicates in a a lot of ways, it's like it's actually a show lot of fun, especially for kids. Mm -hmm. Just opt in for what you want to do. If you don't want to make cookies, don't make cookies. I got so excited about the treat stand. And it's because I grew up in a household where I heard the most profanity when the tree was being put up Mm -hmm. and when my mom was trying to make rollout cookies. Like my memories of the holidays were my parents trying to do these obligatory things that made them crazy. I know. Why would you do that? This is like why I think actually A Christmas Story is a better movie than I sometimes give Mm. it credit for is like, ironically, the parents, this is the trap across the board and it's just magnified in the holidays is they are trying to give you the feeling they had when they were eight years old. Right. And they don't consciously know that that's what they are doing, but they're trying to do that. And they've internalized 4,000 steps that you have to nail each one of inevitably fail themselves along the way. So like you have it manifested like in a Christmas story, which is like the mom who's never allowed to eat. She's never able to eat because she's just trying to like make people's food. And the dad who just is swearing every 10 seconds for his entire life Mm -hmm. because he's trying to like get the perfect trees, trying to like get the perfect gift, trying to like have like perfect light set up, like all of that stuff. And they're just driving themselves crazy. And needing Brian Doyle Murray to show up from out of nowhere and be like, I'm saving the family. (laughs) I'm saving the family. Oh, my God. More and more, it's clear to me that, like, the traditional way to celebrate the winter holidays, at least for white people in America, who are the ones I know best, hi, is to just, like, do the seasonal Olympics of a lot of stuff that you feel at least Mm -hmm. a little bit stressed about. I come from a family where the only thing we really enjoy doing Mm -hmm. is baking, you know? So there's like some events in there for that. But yeah, I guess that it's like a time when you're being audited by the family IRS (laughs) and have to like perform being a family for a month straight. And it's always horrifying if it's a perk that way. Absolutely. (laughs) I think that that's why New Year's is so special. Yeah, you're like, oh my God, we're alive. We didn't get killed in another family murder-suicide. It's not about the year ending. It's about the past six weeks closing. Yeah, it's about living. So outside of just acknowledging that While You Were Sleeping is like a good romantic comedy, it does what it's supposed to do and is a fantasy with regard to like having a low-conflict group of people, Mm -hmm. what about this movie like moves you if at all what about this movie do you find funny what speaks to you why is this a movie sarah in particular that you and your mom revisit year to year it's a good rom-com it feels good for me it hits the right emotional notes that by the end i'm like ah you know you just like 
rom-coms are like horror movies also in that they go straight for the body mm-hmm. and it either works on you or it doesn't. Like if you can watch it from a remove, then it isn't working. And I also think that it's a movie that like teaches you to empathize with somebody who did something pretty far out. I just really appreciate that. How like every time it's like, well, you see, it's a bunch of little steps to do something really far out when you think about it. I do like the fact that the relationship with the Michael Raspoli character, with the landlord, I mean, it, these little tiny moments, mm-hmm. the other patient in the hospital room, yeah. like everyone's sort of a human yeah. other than Ashley. And Ashley just like comes charging in. It's like, did Sigourney Weaver just finally get off the elevator and working girl? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, here she comes. <laughs> you know, that character, you know, the, the terrible professional woman that we must all fear and dread. But everyone just feels very human scale and I think it's charming because we, so many movies have become so big and so Mm -hmm. bombastic. I'm pretty ignorant about DC and Marvel movies in part because I have the sense now that I wouldn't even be able to follow it because these worlds are so huge and there's so many references and I'll hear people talk about a Marvel show or a movie that sounds kind of good. And it's like, but you can't follow it if you don't know all these other things. I'm like, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. It's like eating a 72 ounce steak. It's like, where do you begin? (laughs) (laughs) At the side that's closest to you, of course. (laughs) Also, are movies getting logier as I go back to the theater now? Everything feels like a little bit longer than it needs to be. Oh, Sarah, can you speak to this? Yes, Laura. In my opinion, (laughs) they are. Everything is too long now. Everything. Okay, I do have a question about while you were sleeping. Mm. When did Jack and Lucy fall in love? Oh, great question. When they were slipping around on the ice. That's when. That's it? (laughs) I think that's it. It is. It's very subdued. Yeah, well, they're subdued people. (laughs) Is he in love? Or is this the first time in his life that he's getting something that was meant for his brother that he actually deserves. Well, that's a scary question. His whole setup, his whole thing is like, he seems to be the actually good brother. Mm-hmm. I love the turn to find out that this guy was actually an asshole, mm-hmm. like, which is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of revealed that his psychology, like Pullman psychology is like partially informed by that. Cause he recalls this time when he was a kid, when like someone where someone like acknowledged basically the perceived goodness of his brother versus him. And I'm curious to know if like he is actually in love or if he's like, finally I get something that was meant for my brother. And it's this woman. Maybe it's both. <laughs> That's the charitable read. Yeah, maybe one led him to see the love. Who knows? Yeah, that's a great question. I believe when I'm watching the film that Jack is in love with Lucy, but I think I'm going to credit that to Bill Pullman because... Mm. Yeah, not because of the script. <laughs> it's like, Fair. when did that happen exactly? You know, when did you go from being suspicious of her to spreading false rumors about her pregnancy <laughs> to being like, oh no, this is the one for me. And then she can't see it. They're both very reserved in that way Mm -hmm. and it's only when you actually get to the wedding scene she says she's in love with him and he's like i'm in love with her too Mm -hmm. all of pullman's growth is like very sneaky (laughs) i didn't know that he was going to tell his dad the fact that he didn't want the business when he did i was like oh he's there now i didn't even know that we had reached that you know he's like salty at the beginning 
but still charismatic. And then he's charismatic and a little less salty. And then he's not salty. Those are the three phases of him in this movie. Mm-hmm. Does this movie come before or after Sleepless in Seattle? After. This one is right after. Yeah. And I think that Bill Pullman is also like one of the romantic comedy classic like sessions musicians of this time where like you just give him a story and he makes it work somehow for sure he's a really special actor i think special little guy so it really should be called while you were sleeping colon justice for walter (laughs) yes is it fair to say that the test of a good romantic comedy is that with just the change of a few details, it would also make like a really great dark noir story? Well, I certainly think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it was written by Nora Ephron, absolutely. Yeah. But also, yeah, I would say that there's really <laughs> a truly within the genre repeated emphasis on like violations of trust, subterfuge, mistaken identities. You could connect that to Shakespeare and you could also talk about like this coming from this sort of sense of the battle of the sexes going on. And like, I feel like this reaches its low point in how to lose a guy in 10 days, which is just like has no charm to compensate for how depressing the storyline is where like Matthew McConaughey is like, I can get a girl to fall in love with me in five days. And Kate Hudson is like, I can get a guy to break up with me in 10 days. And they're both like, having this little war of like warring tricks. It's terrifying. Yeah, I feel like a person saying I could get a woman to fall in love with me in 10 days is some real fucking 90s thriller shit. Yeah, there's a Neil Labute play about that. (laughs) There is, there sure is. Plays a little differently, yeah. Almost all stories have a moment where They don't exist if the question is, what if everybody just told the truth? Mm. (laughs) Fascinating. Going back to the thing you said earlier, Laura, I think like a lot of the things that work for this movie for me are a lot of the things that you noted. It takes a lot of time to do things that maybe like on the page seem unnecessary. But like, you know more than one thing about all of her coworkers. You know more than one thing about her neighbor. Like, you know about her relationship with her landlord from that conversation. Like that conversation isn't just to illustrate that she's like a, she's lonely or whatever. It illustrates like some back history Mm -hmm. with them. It does all of these things that to the point where we reach the era of romantic comedies that you're talking about, Sarah, with how to lose a guy in 10 days. I feel like that stuff gets Mm -hmm. excised over time or maybe it did. I don't know if maybe it's sort of like we weren't blessed with a lot of it in the first place. Because you don't need Michael Rispoli. Like people will still watch it. You don't need it at all. But he adds so much. He completes the whole package. He's the something extra on the plate that makes you go, my God, what is this? I love it. Everyone is more than just one thing. Like even kids, movies aren't that generous with children very often. Yeah. For example, in The Family Stone, where there's a child walking around the whole time and you're like, so what's the deal with this kid? And the movie's like, not much, just a kid. Doesn't matter. She's just curled up in a chair waiting for her dad to come home or something. Because we forgot to write a character for him. So I have a question about a joke in this movie. Yeah. What's the, the godfather's name? Saul. Yes. Okay. And what is his relationship to... Not to the family, but to the woman who's always about to have a heart attack. Any? They're just in the family together? They're just friends, I think. You know, maybe they sometimes have a little kiss. I don't know. Okay. She says at some point, I could fall asleep during anything. 
And he says, mm-hmm. believe me, she can. Mm-hmm. And then the little girl says, you go, Grandpa. I've never read that joke as sexual, to be honest. No. It's also like not her grandpa. Right. So I didn't understand who she was talking to. Second, I was like, what is she acknowledging? And what is he acknowledging? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what was happening there. If you know the person who's seen this movie, let us know. I always assumed that it was because he like took her to a hockey game or something. <laughs> You're doing a lot of work for the writer there. <laughs> I know. Well, also, I've been watching this movie since I was like seven. So there's a lot of stuff where like, I'm sure if I saw it for the first time now, I'd be like, hey... But it's just continued to go over my head the whole time. <laughs> this is like when we were talking about gremlins. And I was like, maybe they're trying to make this point. And Joe was like, it was an accident. This movie didn't try that hard. Yeah. <laughs> A certain writer for television whom I shall not name because I think he would prefer it that way. Watch the movie The Untouchables five or six times before he finally noticed that the guy that Al Capone killed with the baseball bat was the guy who was overseeing the illegal shipments of alcohol <laughs> that is the first raid. It just always thought it was some random guy. So, <laughs> so uh, it's a classic too many guys problem. Was it Aaron Sorkin? <laughs> it was Aaron Sorkin. Now the truth can be told. <laughs> Laura, while we're gossiping about people, did you ever meet Nora Ephron? No, and I was very disappointed. I actually kind of took it a little bit personally because Nora Ephron was definitely someone who noticed other female writers and like took them in. She did it with Lena Mm. Dunham. She did it with Megan Dom. I mean, it was like this thing that she would do. Whom I have met are Delia and Hallie. Mm. Oh, two out of four. That's pretty good. Yeah. I have to say, it's an odd thing to say. I'm actually reading the current biography of her, which is, you know, very in love with her. And her sister Delia obviously loved her unconditionally and is clearly grief struck by her death. And yet what she wrote about Nora Ephron does not make her seem like a pleasant person. Mm. Yeah. It's really weird. It's like, you know, oh, you couldn't give her a present. She'd always return it. I'm really interested in Efron. I think she's a brilliant writer. I can't believe more people don't say this out loud more often. She's not a good director. Mm. Mm. She's just not. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why when Harry met Sally is so much better than Sleepless in Seattle. Is it because of Rob Reiner? And I think it's because of Rob Reiner. (laughs) I love You've Got Mail. It has so many like delightful things about it. But even seeing it as a tween, I was like, this is awkwardly paced. Boy, this is probably going to result in some hate coming back at me. But when I say that Efron is not a good director, there's nothing visually arresting about the worlds that she creates on Mm. screen. Mm -hmm. You never sit in a Nora Efron movie directed by Nora Efron and take in the beauty of a shot. And she has a horrible, horrible habit of using very literal soundtracks. Mm. Yeah. Where, you know, Tom Hanks is going to ask someone out on a date. So you play back in the saddle again. And in the movie, Michael, if you remember it, when John Travolta was an angel and William Hurt. Oh my God, I forgot about Michael. (laughs) Of course I remember Michael. There is literally a scene in which William Hurt is riding a train thinking about the love that got away. And they actually play the lyric, I took a ride on a train and I thought about you. I mean, (laughs) there is a literal mindedness to the use of music in her work that, um, 
is unfortunate. She's not awful. She's not bad. I'm not trying to make the case that she's a terrible director. She's, you know, just sort of a competent mm-hmm. one. She's not that different than a lot of rom-com directors and certain movies that we probably love and they're fun, but we're not like, right. boy, that's a great director. Because really, I feel like most directors have to just be able to not really look too distinctive at all yeah. and just be like, yeah, I can be a competent guy and put it together and not make a fuss. If you're talking about comparisons, like to Reiner's credit, he's been in that industry since he was born. Look at Rob Reiner's body of work as a director. Stand By Me, (laughs) Princess Bride. Stand By Me looks more like a crazy French movie than I ever would have suspected. I think I talked about this in our episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Efron, as a filmmaker, The director part of it just doesn't seem to be very engaged in some way. It's just like, I'm going to put the camera here and shoot. I feel like what you're saying is that you don't feel like she has a strong voice. She's a word person. Right. You can't beat her on the words. You just cannot. And I love her essays. But in the visuals, that's where you sneak up on her and kill her. (laughs) I was listening to the audio version of Heartburn today as I cleaned house. It's Mm -hmm. probably the third Mm -hmm. time I've listened to it. I know that book so well at this point that I can like shout out lines before they're said. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge admirer of her. I knew people who knew her. My agent knew her because my agent is married to someone who is like kind of big on the food scene. I don't think she would have liked me or approved of me. <laughs> <laughs> this is good to know. That's my understanding of her as like beloved, but difficult, but like also as a person who I like to think I have a lot of people in my life who love me, who also find me a very difficult person. Like I find it relatable. I mean, obviously I don't know that side of you at all. You're just always so congenial. I mean, I don't think I'm like shitty, but I think it can be difficult to know me deeply in the long term. When I learn about people who are like that, I'm like, oh, that's that's refreshing. But one thing I did learn about Efron, and she says it in Heartburn that she insists on happy endings. You know, the character Rachel says, I insist on happy endings. And early in her biography, the, the writer notes that part of the reason she wanted to write romantic comedies is she really did finally get it right with her third marriage. Mm. And she had finally had a happy ending Mm. and she wanted everyone to, to sort of celebrate that idea and to know that it was possible for everyone. I kind of like that rather than like you're doing it because that's how stories end. Mm. That's really cool, actually. And that like the great romantic hero is going to look like Tom Hanks. He's not going to look like (laughs) Thor. But if he does, good for you. Yeah. I mean, for some people he does. For Chris Hemsworth's wife, he does. Mostly. Laura, is there anything else? Because I know every time you join us, you take extensive notes. I've seen pictures every time you're engaging and you send pictures of the notes. Is there anything you want to make sure we bring up before we uh, we start rapping and ask our big question? Oh, I will say there was this one moment and it just made me laugh. When the family starts arguing about movie stars and, and how they have to be tall, mm-hmm. I'm in my head, I'm like, Alan Ladd wasn't tall. And then a character in the movie <laughs> out and out said that. I was like, so this movie's inside my head. <laughs> I loved how real and absolutely chaotic that conversation was. Like, that does feel like when mm-hmm. you're at someone else's... These mashed potatoes are so creamy. Yes. It's like when you're at someone else's family's house and you're like, they have a way of operating that I don't fully understand yet. Like, that's what that felt like. Yeah. Sarah, is there anything you want to bring up that we haven't gotten to? No, it's just like, it's a weird movie. Watch it. Enjoy it. 
Think about the politics of love and gender. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right. Well, we know that Peter Boyle was a father in this movie. We should remind people who have come into the show late that our show is named after a line from Young Frankenstein, where Peter Boyle plays the monster in this case and is told, you are good by Gene Wilder. And if our logo is based on that, I just want to bring that up because some people come in late and they don't know sort of, they don't know our history. So Peter Boyle is like baked into the mythology of the show. But Peter Boyle was a father in this movie. Who, in your view, Laura Lippman, was the daddy? Oh, it's got to be the Jack Warden character. Mm. He's looking after everybody. He's trying to call the shots. His decision to go in and tell Peter that he has to propose to Lucy again, well, maybe we should have spent like 45 minutes talking about that because who is he doing that for? Great question. I don't think he's doing it to keep Glennis Johns from having a heart attack. No. If you think about it, he knows Peter is a putz. He said that to him. And he has come to really care about Lucy. So as he decided that having Lucy in the family is so good for the family and so good for her, and that somehow she will be able to do what no woman has ever been able to do in the history of the world, she's going to make a bad man a good man? I mean, it feels Shakespearean, (laughs) right? Like Because like he... I think he's trying to give her the gift that he presently has, which is he has this family and he knows that she needs it. And then also on the other side of that, he's trying to give this kid that he loves, but sees his many, many, many shortcomings an opportunity to get out of that. And to his credit, he obviously doesn't know that Lucy and Jack have unstated feelings for one another. Right. But he's really, if you stop and think about it for maybe 90 seconds, <laughs> the idea that the great gift I'm going to give you is marriage to this man that you pine for <laughs> simply because he wore beautiful suits and walked past you every day, who has a lot of growing up to do, but it's, it's a bad dad idea, but it's very mm-hmm. dad-ish. Totally. I think like, especially when you're a man and have been given the luxury of just like, just give it time. Like you're not the one who's going to be suffering. The people around you are going to be It's like, he's a good looking guy. You're a nice person. You like us. We like you. Maybe he'll finally get his act together. I don't, but it's such a weird, odd choice, but it's also the choice that to me cements him as the daddy. He's trying to be in charge and run things and make things happy. And it's like, I'm going to decree what the right ending is. I mean, that whole wedding, that's his baby. Hmm. I'm going to say Peter Boyle is the father and the daddy only because, again, just like the fantasy scene alone of delivering what could potentially be devastating, ego-shattering news to the patriarch. And they're like, oh, cool, I get it. Like, absolute beautiful fantasy shit that I enjoyed spending time with, even though I know that that would not have been my experience. And I think that that's why I did like it. Dream daddy. Especially. Dream daddy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sarah Marshall. I'm going to say Peter Gallagher because he's able to actually take this experience as an invitation to change his wicked ways and do so. And starts off by going in the wrong direction, by trying to marry a woman he doesn't know. 
but to his credit, he doesn't know that. He's been gaslit extensively. <laughs> yeah. And willingness to change is the true ingredient of daddyhood, in my opinion. I love it. That's beautiful. Well, this was, as always, as ever, with the conversation with Laura Littman, the mayor of Baltimore, the daddy of the You Are Good universe. Um, <laughs> it's just been an absolute delight. Well, it's so much fun catching up with y'all. And it was really nice to do it right before the holidays. Again, I would make this a holiday tradition. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you to Ethan Satiwan for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for editing and producing this episode. Thank you, Laura Lippman, for just being our friend and for being here with us. We are so grateful to have you as a part of the You Are Good family. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on uh, Patreon. Like I said, you can find us on Apple Podcast Subscriptions. You can support the show in that way. Next week, we'll be talking about Ghostbusters 2, one of the ultimate New Year's Eve movies with our great friend, Candace Opper. Thanks for being here. You, my friend, are good. 